Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Assembling a Long-Term Sequential Plan for Unresectable Hepatocellular Carcinoma, Practical Guidance for Improving Real-World Outcomes. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Hello, my name is Peter Galle. I'm a professor of medicine at Mainz University Medical Center with a focus on hepatology and in particular hepatocellular carcinoma, which is the topic of today. We will be using a case-based approach to review treatment sequencing strategies and long-term management for patients with unresectable HCC. This is in view of the many systemic treatment options we have today, the many lines of therapy for the best of our patient. And let's get started here with a brief case vignette. Andrew, male, age 67, is suffering from cirrhosis as underlying disease, some comorbidities, and he has developed hepatocellular carcinoma in an advanced stage disease. His performance status is with one okay, he has good liver function, and he was put on immunotherapy, first-line agents in these days. It was in this, his case atezolizumab and bevacizumab. And after eight months, he developed clinically mild jaundice fatigue and abdominal pain. So we were suspicious that something is all going on. And this is a regular situation, as you are probably seeing it in your clinical practice as well. Something is happening and we are suspicious that there is disease progression. In clinical reality, patients probably have a mix out of these options offered. I'd like to highlight the approach as we are doing it before we get back to our patients. So you typically will get started with patient history, physical and laboratory examinations, and you will pay attention to symptoms, whether they are new symptoms or symptoms worsening. Particularly, you're interested in jaundice, development of ascites, encephalopathy, bleeding, of course, and if there's uh, a change in organ size, particularly in the spleen, could be thrombus in the portal vein, something you would want to know. That will be supplemented by liver function tests for thrombin, albumin, bilirubin, and as we are having a somehow solid serum uh, tumor marker, alpha-fetoprotein might complement these diagnostics. Unfortunately, there are no solid um, diagnostic tools based on molecular biology, uh, at least not in clinical practice. So in that setting, you will sus suspect that there is something going on and you do a scan. can be either MRI or CT and you are checking, of course, for changes in present nodules, appearance of new, new nodules. And um, if you compare the level of information you get from CT, MRI, and also from CUS, from contrast-enhanced uh, ultrasound, it's fair to say that MRI is having the highest sensitivity. Um, the specificity of all these three methods are more or less alike. 
CUs can be used diagnostically, but you don't get this panoramic view as you're getting it from scans in CT or MRI. So it's just diagnostic, but it's not for in, in a setting of a staging situation. You will check, is there a previous lesion which has enlarged? Is there a new lesion? In HCC, it's particularly relevant to pay attention to vascular invasion, mostly portal vein. And if there is a thrombus in portal vein, you should always check if that is a tumor which would appear by hyperenhancement in a contrast-based imaging. Of course, staging needs to be completed by doing uh, a test on extra pallic spread. If there is pulmonary metastasis, it's make a difference. But also the um, liver function may actually, as a result of a tumor, for, for example, in the liver hilum, might, might get worse just because of tumor growth, not because of deterioration of cirrhosis. So these are the signs you have to check for. Just remember, we have multi lines of systemic therapy, so we are able to do something if there is progression. If we see progression, if we are suspicious that there is progression, we need to do a scan and go from there. In the next um, session, we will discuss what we can offer Andrew in this setting where immunotherapy apparently has failed. Thank you. In the second session, we will review the second-line treatment options for patients presenting with unresectable HCC who have progressed on immunotherapy-based regimens. And we will get back to our patient, Andrew, who we've confirmed has, in fact, progressed on first-line immunotherapy. So uh, the current staging situation demonstrated that the initially existing hepatic tumor has increased in size. There is new portal vein invasion. There is new lymph node metastasis. And in that setting, it's clearly treatment progression. And we need to discuss what options we are able to offer. Yeah, thank you. I mean, we in a comprehensive setting try to integrate all these data, but um, in general, I personally feel that the balance between risk and um, benefit is most important. Benefit in terms of is there a good tumor control, risk in terms of the adverse event profile. And you can go from the left side of the spectrum, I would say a good response to therapy and well tolerated, to the right side of the spectrum, not a good response, poorly tolerated. I mean. It's clear on the right side we would stop immediately and uh, go to another therapy. On the left, you might actually take a little while to decide. But we have options. We have, after immunotherapy, the ability to switch the mode of action and go to TKIs. That would include lenvatinib, sorofinib, ragorofinib, and carbosantinib as options. And in addition, we have an anti-oncogenic antibody, ramosirumab, restricted for those patients with a high alpha fetoprotein. What do the guidelines recommend? Well, ESMO, as an example, suggests to get started with immunotherapy. There are two basic regimes available, and if there is progress, 
Esmo just added the old strategy of first and second line, starting with lenvatinib, serafinib, followed by regorafinib, promisorum, cabozantinib. This is doable, but of course has never been really tested in that sequence precisely. So we are having to make a choice here between TKIs and Unfortunately, the data set is not very pronounced. We have very few head-to-head -head comparisons. One was the REFLECT trial, sorofenib or lenvatinib, and it was clear that lenvatinib was non-inferior to sorofenib. And the surrogate markers, PFS, TTP, objective response, were actually in favor of lenvatinib. And as lenvatinib was stepping into the field later, the new kit on the block was a bit more um, there were people treatment treating physicians were more inclined to use lenvatinib over serafinib. And it has been shown as an example that in second line and after immunotherapy, this is working. So we know, although it's not a controlled trial setting and not large data set, but in um, real world assessment, we know that second line therapy with TKI works. I personally like the suggestion coming from the Eastern guideline, where after failure with immunotherapy, the option is suggested to just switch the mode of action, go to a TKI, and then there is not a good reason to recommend one TKI over the other. All are possible. Selection is depending on many aspects, comorbidities, previous history, patients' overall health, there is not a clear, just one-way road. It is something where you have to make decisions basically based on your personal experience. And it is fair to say that all those uh, substances which have been tested in the past are probably available and appropriate for patients progressing on immunotherapy. So second-line treatment in patients failing or not tolerating immunotherapy is TKI, is targeted therapy. And um, that, of course, then in a sequence of events is creating new questions. And the next question in the next setting ses session will actually be, what do we do in those patients who fail TKI therapy in second line? What do we do in third line? Thank you very much. Now let's continue in our patient journey. We have seen a patient who failed on immunotherapy and are able to offer TKI treatment in second line. But again, patient may progress and the question is, what is our next step? There's a lot to be considered when you switch from a second line TKI to a further line TKI. Unfortunately, these data have not been generated in a sequence coming from immunotherapy, but there are solid data generated post serofinib. The first trial here was the resource trial, where we saw that regorafenib in uh, a sequence after serofinib is quite effective in improving overall survival and median progression-free survival. 10 months overall survival at that time in a second line treatment as it was, was a solid improvement. Similarly, 
the celestial trial was investigating another TKI, cabosantinib, again after sorofnib. The data actually are quite comparable between overall, overall survival in this setting, 10.2 versus eight months, again, a solid improvement. And also meeting progression-free survival was improved. And then it was a bit more complex. The REACH trial initially failed, but subgroup analysis showed there is an option for high alpha-fetoprotein that generated the REACH2 trial. And here in patients selected for high alpha-fetoprotein, again, a statistically meaningful prolongation of overall survival was achieved. The data are a bit lower, 8.5 median overall survival versus 7.3, but that's explained by the fact that high alpha-fetoprotein is prognostically relevant and characterizes a more aggressive and more advanced tumor. The um, option to use fregorafenib has actually been thoroughly investigated in prospective observational exploratory analysis more than 1,000 patients, and it was clearly shown that um, dragorafenib in real life works in the second-line setting, but also in a third-line setting, and also after immunotherapy, although the best results were achieved in exactly what had been tested in the resource trial, sorofenib followed by dragorafenib. That is the story about efficacy. But um, there's more, and that is what comes in the next section. Thank you. Welcome back to session four. Here we will consider factors that are important when choosing between the TKI options for patients with unresectable HCC. And here we will go beyond efficacy and also talk about toxicity. Let's take another patient, Margaret who cannot tolerate immune-based regimes and requires switching to a TKI. So Margaret is a 72-year-old woman who had been put on tremolimumab plus duanumab, so the Himalaya regime, in the setting of advanced stage disease. And unfortunately, although responding well, she developed severe hepatitis, grade four, and immunotherapy was stopped. On what grounds do we decide the next line of treatment? Unfortunately, there is not a controlled data set where we in large phase three trials have assessed all these burning questions in decision-making. We have basically not a lot of biomarkers AFP is the only one, and high AFP may guide us into ramocirumab treatment. Toxicity profile may be um, different between the different TKIs, and it should be considered when we talk about next um, therapy. But we are able to manage side effects, and we can use, although in critical patients, TKIs, and just have to pay attention to the given uh, side effects and the upfront management. And unfortunately, the um, history of the patient, the underlying liver disease, tumor stage, and response to uh, prior therapy is not so much predictive, so that's an open space. We look at the patient, we talk to the patient. We want to see how is the liver doing. Is there underlying disease such as immune disease? 
is there a high risk of bleeding? Are there comorbidities preventing further treatment? Is it a patient who has received an organ transplant, which of course in the setting of immunosuppression is uh, creating issues, you would not be able to use immunotherapy here anyway. So all that has to be streamlined and to, made, uh, to make up a personal treatment recommendation for a patient. As an example, if you are dealing with a patient with uh, skin disease, psoriasis for example, and foot skin reaction as a result of serafinib might not be something you want to risk. And in a patient with high hypertension, kidney damage, you might be less inclined to use lenvatinib, which has this side effect profile. So if you have lenvatinib, for example, you would expect more hypertension. In the case of serafinib, you would expect more hand foot skin reaction. That might help you. And if you compare those substances tested in second line in the past, regorafenib, papasantamine, and ramucirumab. One can say that ramucirumab is probably the one best tolerated, at least the discontinuation rate was relatively low in this setting. So in conclusion, we have to get a full picture. We have to look at our patient and make an individual decision. This is experience-based and is paying uh, attention to side effect profile and side effect management, but it depends on your experience more than on evidence data. So you have to really talk to your patient, listen to your patient, look at your patient. And then you have to make an individual decision. Those available substances, targeted therapies, TKIs, are all possible, but you have to individualize. And based on this, in the end, we will have also to make a decision when to stop treatment, and that is discussed in the next session. Thank you very much. In our final session, we would like to give and share some practical advice on managing patients in the clinic, specifically with respect to the question when to stop, when to modify, when to discontinue treatment. The issue here is you really have to pay attention to your patient. Not all patients are alike. And in one patient, quality of life, life may matter more than quantity, lifespan. And it may be the other way around. There might be a family event in three months where the patient wants to be present and is fighting for basically every day. So that needs to be figured out and um, in the end, you can help the patient to overcome side effects by explaining that they are correlated with um, the prognosis, the outcome, and you can manage side effects. But at some point, you just might want to stop in order to save the patient from issues such as um, severely impaired uh, quality of life. In the end, we are talking about a risk-benefit ratio. Benefit in terms of response, risk in terms of adverse events. But adverse events are not just negative, and this is very important for the patient to know. We have a good correlation between the appearance of certain side effects, such as hand-foot skin reaction, and the therapeutic response 
and the overall prognosis. So you can tell the patient, yes, it's bad that you feel here a side effect and it's hampering you, but at the same time, it's showing efficacy of therapy. This is in fact, in fact um, very helpful for the individual patient to tolerate whatever he or she is suffering from. And in the setting of management, there are very good recommendations where dose modifications, interruptions, and in particular treatments are um, explained. If you take hand-foot skin reaction as an example, there is a need to get started up front. You need to protect your feet, your exposed area where there's mechanical stress. You need to get started early with ointments. You might need um, steroids, um, creams, and so on. And then you are able to go longer than in a patient where that is not the case. And of course, you would want to take care of your side effect profile. And that is something where you have clear definitions, for example, on dose reductions. And in TKIs, this is extremely helpful. I've been treating patients with only um, 200 milligram of serafinib successfully over many months because they just didn't tolerate more. And if there is an issue with a given toxicity, again, for example, and food, that's something you need to explain to the patient up front. You need to really treat it, emollients, steroids, and um, physical protection of, of exposed areas. Hypertension is easy to treat, but you need to treat it. So there are many things to do to make it easier. So in the end, we have options, many lines of therapy. Sequential systemic therapy is reality. And that is something which is quite different to 15 years ago. We do have some toxicity. We are quite good actually in these days to um, cope with it and to take care of it. And as we are having different modes of actions, we can choose, we can um, alternate, and we actually can even, we didn't talk about that, go back from TKI after failure of immunotherapy later to immunotherapy again. So many aspects for the best of our patients. Thank you very much for your interest. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.